Welcome to Food Friends. I'm Carrie. And I'm Sonia. We met in Los Angeles over 15 years ago as private chefs and haven't stopped talking about food since. We created Food Friends to share our stories and recipes with each other and you. We're so glad you're here. Hi, it's Sonia. One of the things I love about doing this podcast with Carrie is she always comes with ideas that I never quite had before. I never thought to do a steakhouse at home, and once she brought it up, I can't get it out of my head. Because yes, steak is amazing, but even if you don't eat steak, part of the fun of a steakhouse is all the incredible sides. And yeah, in this episode, we're going to talk about how to make steak, but we're also going to talk about all the delicious things that can go with a steak and how to do that easy and simply at home. And if you've been enjoying the show, we'd love to hear from you. If you have a few moments and can leave us a review on iTunes, that really helps us spread the word about the show. We so appreciate your five-star ratings and your written reviews. And you can always reach us at foodfriendspod at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening and stay tuned for more. Hi, Sonia. Hi, Carrie. I'm so excited to see you today. I'm really excited to see you too. And this I is have a, a kind really... of. <laughs> Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> no, we both got too excited. Uh... I know. Well, we're going to talk about having a steakhouse dinner at home, which I have to say, I don't necessarily do this so often for my family, but I used to do it a lot when I was a personal chef. Like, wait, and... so your clients would be like, we want a version of a steakhouse for a dinner party or just for like a Wednesday night meal? Kind of both. I had clients that I would cook steak for like once a week. And that was sort of like trial by fire for me because I didn't know how to make a steak before I started working for this family. And they were like real steak enthusiasts. And I think in some ways they sort of coached me through the best way to make a steak. I was just to say, because right, steak is intimidating, isn't it? It's so intimidating. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of times when I'm even teaching cooking classes, it comes up a lot. People can be afraid. I was afraid to make steak. I think I still have some residual every time I make a steak. I'm a little nervous. I mean, honestly, I do too. I think the idea of steak, it's an investment, right? And I think even if you are, even if you're buying like a cheaper steak, like a flank steak or a skirt steak, as opposed to like a prime New York strip, that's like $35 a pound, you know, there's a big price difference between those two things. But I think there's this real reverence for beef in America. Yeah. And, and an acknowledgement that it's not an everyday kind of thing. Or for most people, I don't think it's an everyday kind of thing. I never grew up going to a steakhouse. I mean, as you know, like we didn't go to restaurants, going to a restaurant was like a twice a year kind of special occasion thing. And I think that's typical in a lot of immigrant homes. But as an adult, I certainly have gone to steakhouses, but I still always feel like they're special occasion experiences. Like I totally agree. You know, going to a steakhouse becomes a little bit more of an individual choice, right? Like I think you're choosing your main and a lot of times the sides can be meant for to be shared. But like That's my favorite part of a steakhouse experience. That's I love the sides. I'm fine with a steak. It's it's delicious, especially a great one, but I'm kind of there for the sides. Well, I'm there for the sides. And I think generally speaking, I choose restaurants that I can go to that are individual dishes with, that I can share with a bunch of people because I like to taste a bunch of flavors. And that's right. definitely my approach to restaurants as it mostly is yours too. I yeah. think that's one of the things that we bond over. But that's why we're not- such great restaurant buddies because not everyone <laughs> feels that way. Totally. And it's really nice to be able to share that. And I'm not like, I'm not judging people. 
I know people no, who want to, no. who don't like sharing and that's your prerogative. Like yes. that's, yeah. there's no, nothing wrong my, with that. Some of my closest friends don't like to share, but I agree with you. I think a steakhouse is a special thing, yet it is doable at home. Okay. So do you want to describe like maybe one of the meals like in its entirety before we get into how we make steak? Like what were you serving at these steakhouse nights that you were personal chefing? Well, this family that I worked for, they had an outdoor kitchen. So mm. I was actually always cooking steaks outside on the grill. And since we live in Southern California, that was pretty much always possible. So even in the middle of the winter, it was still pretty pretty possible to like cook a steak on the grill. And I do have a grill at my house. I honestly don't use it as much as, you know, I, I had a lot of clients that we would grill every week at their house. But at my own house, I sometimes grill and sometimes cook my steak on a cast iron skillet. So we can sort of talk about the difference between those two things. But, you know, it was a family. It was a weeknight. We would have a steak. We would have a couple of sides. And that would be it. But, but I but have- I want to know what the sides were. That's what I'm I mean, I want to get into how we make steak, but I really want to know what were your go-to sides when you were doing an at-home steak house kind of vibe. Well, this is where like the development of my Caesar salad recipe really came from uh-huh. and really played around with like Caesar dressing and how did I like it to taste. And one of the things that kept popping into my mind as I was thinking about this conversation with you is horseradish. Mm. Um, because to me, that's such a steakhouse flavor. You know, you can get like a horseradish sauce for your steak. And for me, horseradish, like a fresh horseradish is secret ingredient in my Caesar salad dressing. Oh, I kind of remember us talking about this. It gives it like this bite that is so great. And then I also think about like a Bloody Mary and having like a Bloody Mary at a steakhouse as your first drink. And so I feel like that horseradish in a Bloody Mary is like such a great way to start the night. So you're Um, having Caesar salad, you're having grilled steak. And then I'm always thinking about something bitter and green and garlicky. So, Uh and I guess like what I'm thinking about is cooking for this family. They didn't eat a lot of starch, so I didn't cook potatoes for them. And so I would always do a salad and a vegetable. So I always love something, a grilled broccoli or like a sautéed garlicky broccolini, broccoli rabe, sautéed kale with a bunch of garlic. I like that on the side of my steak at home. Yeah, but me like, too. But at a restaurant, I think a steak and a potato is – that's where I start. Steak yeah, it's hard for me to imagine potato not being included. But I have to say I do love a side of greens on the table, especially if there's like a larger party. And I think a bitter green like a broccolini rapini with a lot of garlic is so nice mm. or a big – pile of kale. I also like low-key love cream spinach. I have mixed feelings about it. I mean, I <laughs> I feel like there are some versions of cream spinach that are so incredible. The truth is, is I always want to order, especially if there's a group of people. I'm like, oh, let's get the cream spinach. But half the time I'm like wowed and half the time I take one bite and I'm done because it's like so sad and cloy. To that point, the thing is we're talking about steakhouse at home and the truth is I don't think you want to busy your yourself with cream spinach. If I'm you're not going to do it. Yeah. No. It's too much work for that kind of meal. You really want to focus on getting the steak right, having some simple sides. I feel like if you're going to do a little work on a side dish, there's other places to do it. I yeah. love this idea of a Caesar salad though, as part of a steakhouse dinner at home. I love the addition of horseradish like anywhere. And I think it's so brilliant to add that to Caesar dressing, whatever your base dressing mix. It sounds like you can just add some horseradish and elevate the dressing. And it yeah. just makes so much sense. It's so smart. But at an Italian joint, I have to have a Caesar. Like I have to have a Caesar. 
these are, you know, before I had my spaghetti, whatever. But at a steakhouse, I live for a wedge salad. That's so funny. I don't. I mean, obviously you love the iceberg, right? So tell I me, what iceberg. is your like ideal, <laughs> tell me about your ideal wedge salad because I also am not like yeah. a blue cheese lover. You know, it's fun that you're bringing this up because I say wedge salad, but I actually don't make a traditional wedge salad ever at home. If I'm at an old school restaurant, whether of any kind, like there's the, a place called The Palms in the LA. Palm. Yeah, the Palm. The Palm. Okay. Singular. Sorry. The yeah. singular, the palm that's yeah. by like the Staples Center. And totally. I have a friend where we've gone to basketball games and his he has season tickets. And so his ritual is to always go to the palm before the game. I mean, what, and what, a, what an LA night. Dinner at the palm, Lakers at the Staples Center. How great. So perfect. And he's also like a real Chicago <laughs> guy. You know who I'm talking about. Real A real steakhouse yes. guy. Oh, yeah. But when we go, I get a wedge salad at the palm. That's what I'm getting. And that's where they're going to do it really. And I don't get bacon on it. It, it comes with basically a ranch dressing or blue cheese dressing with crumbled blue cheese. Right. And then they do a ton of fried crispy shallot and tomato. I don't know that I've had that version. So at home, if I'm doing the best version, and also I did this at the deli, of a wedge salad, I make a ranch, but that's a very heavily herby, as you can imagine, like a not quite traditional ranch. Sometimes I like to do like a yogurt ranch because I love the tanginess. I don't do a blue cheese. So there's like tons of dill and parsley and if I have it tarragon because it's so so good in a wedge salad yeah, like so herbaceous yeah it has some kind of mystery note that everyone's mm-hmm. like what is that and it's like it's tarragon then sliced cherry tomatoes a crispy onion or shallot because I think it just adds like all a crispy that- fried right mm-hmm. it's like adds that richness that you're looking for I feel like you've really given me permission to love iceberg again I so grew I grew up eating so much iceberg lettuce and then it was iceberg is out it's so nothing yeah and and I think your love of it has really brought it back to a place of real reverence for the crunchiness and the lightness of it. And I think the idea of the fattiness of a crispy fried onion on that seems like such a great combo. It's so good. Yeah. And then I just do a ton of herbs on top. But then I'd like to get into steaks because you were saying that you – like so I really at home, I never grill steak. I always do a cast iron cook on a steak and I do a pretty traditional one where you're basting it with herbs and garlic and you know and then you rest I the don't meat. do any of that okay <laughs> I love I love wait explain to me what you mean by basting like okay what's yeah. we have to talk about the cut of meat of Ugh. meat that we're talking about there's so many different ways to cook a steak I am so not an expert I want to be like, full disclosure cuts of beef are not my forte I, what cut of beef are you buying usually like a New York or okay. Yeah, I mean, I don't tend to eat like a filet mignon at ha- at my house. I would eat that out maybe in the world, but that's not something I would make at home. What about okay, you? We're on the same page. My number one if I'm going to buy a steak, cook a steak, order a steak, it's a New York strip. Yeah. And, you know, and that's like separate from like a taco that uses like a flank steak or a skirt steak. But I have to just say, I'm sure that I'll make some enemies with this. Like, I think a filet mignon is the saddest cut of beef that exists. There's zero fat on it. It has no flavor. That's why I love so much the New York strip. Because it's well, like you're the not perfect. alone. There is, the, there is that sense of, especially as a woman, I find when I like go to a steakhouse, like, oh, would you like like the filet mignon and I was like no give me that prime New York strip and I think that flavor other people also really love a ribeye like my dad used to cook a lot of ribeyes when we were growing up but that just is on the too fatty side for me it's like me too too. right me too I I would eat it I'm so we totally agree yeah a New York strip is my go-to at 
at home. Filet mignon, I think you're, I think even Anthony Bourdain talked about this. Many people have talked about how it's the saddest cut because of its mm. lack of flavor, its lack of fat. I'll tell you the place that I like it is in Europe, like a steak free. There's something they do. It's incredibly buttery and, and oh, rich yeah. and there's a sauce. And so the fact that the steak is actually a little lighter with all the French fries, which by the way, French fries with a steak is like kind so of a must. Like if I'm at a steakhouse, yeah. I'm not doing it at home, but if I'm at a steakhouse, yeah. I kind of have to have an order of fries on the table. Yeah. But in France, you know, or in Belgium or in lots of places in Europe, Copenhagen, wherever, you can get like a steak with a pile of fries in some kind of peppercorn sauce. Yeah. And that to me is the time and place for a filet. Well, I am so glad that you brought up the addition of sauce because I like zero sauce on my New York strip. But if I'm at a steakhouse and there's some kind of like a Bernays sauce or something cool and zippy that this place has, then I will consider ordering a filet mignon so I can have a steak with a little bit of sauce. Because right. the, the way I learned steak from this, this family, they like to prime New York strip. And this is like, this is what they wanted. And this is what they ate. I just learned that when you're investing in that kind of beef experience, you don't mess with it. When I cook a prime New York strip, it's olive oil, coat it in olive oil, coat it in kosher salt and throw it on the grill or throw it in a hot pan. Is it on the grill on like a high heat or like a medium high heat or what level are you at? And then are you closing the lid? Are you keeping it open? I usually go with a medium high heat. I definitely have learned over time, you know, I don't want to start on fire and and if it's really thick, I do close it. If it's not, I just like it to be caramelized and crusted on the outside and then like perfectly medium well on the inside. And this family I worked for, it's like I would go to the same butcher. I got the cuts that I liked. Part of how I learned how to make steak was practice and consistency. So yeah. I wasn't making like a different cut every time. I just practiced over and over again, which is why when you go to a steakhouse, you get the most perfect steak because whoever is back in that kitchen has made 40 steaks before you've ordered yours. And yeah. that's why it's like such magic perfection. Yeah. And that's also why it's fun to order a steak at a steakhouse. It's yes. just going to be – but. I don't – so I do it totally different than you because like I said, I don't grill steaks. <laughs> I learned to make steak in a cast iron pan. You get a searing hot pan. Mm -hmm. You add butter to it or fat to it. You put the steak it in. does burn the butter though? I usually add a drizzle of olive oil too. Right. So the butter doesn't burn. You put the – or you save the butter till the end actually. Right, right, right. I think right. this is actually save more how you do it. Yeah. Save to the butter Or save to the butter at a different stage. You put your steak in the pan – you sear it on both sides. It releases mm -hmm. fat too as well. And then once it's like really crusty on both sides, like you get a hard crust on both sides, then you pop it in a hot oven to finish cooking till your desired doneness. You can use a meat thermometer because you can look up the range of like rare, medium, rare, right, whatever. Right, right. And if you're doing rare, usually you don't have to put – you don't need to put it in an oven. But – and then if you're basting it, you add like the butter to the pan. As it's cooking, you're like tilting the pan and scooping that melted right. butter on top of the steak. And you've also added like rosemary and garlic or thyme so that the butter is being infused with garlic and herbs and that's going over the steak. And that's okay. a great place for like a compound butter, right? Like yes, you, you could to totally like a compound use compound butter, yes. which very quickly is basically like you take a stick of butter, you let it sit out and soften it, and then you add flavors to it. Yes. And actually like if you had ramps and you made a ramp butter, a ramp butter on top of a steak, also at the end, like to finish off a steak, people put oh my God, pads I've never of had butter. that before. Uh, I don't even know if I've ever had a ramp. Really? Yeah. That's such a It's not a California specific, thing. Are, don't ramps grow where there's like more moisture? You know, we're like a desert down here. I think, yeah, they're definitely common in the Northeast too. And I think they grow in the South, but all those places have wetter and colder climates than California. So I don't, I never saw them in California, but here you can find them 
you know, and you can find them in the woods and all that. But rams are just basically like very garlicky onion flavors. They're Mm -hmm. delicious, grassy. They're part of like the allium family, right? Totally. But what I learned in recent years, and I was hesitant at first, is the reverse sear method. And it's kind of a game changer. So do you know about this? Uh, I know about it, but I've never done it. I'm very skeptical of it. Well, that's the thing is like I was skeptical and also you kind of like because steak is intimidating, if you figured out how to do it, why would you change your way That's of doing how I it? Feel. Yeah, I'm confident in my steak game. So but like, can, this is such yeah. A no, great I want to know. I I want to hear like what this is because people love it. It makes so much more sense. It's like a much easier way to not mess up your steak, to get it right every time, to get the texture you're looking for, like a buttery, tender texture. It's not going to dry out. So I don't know who invented this. I'd, I'd have to go back and research, but Serious Eats has a great article on it, which we can link. And essentially what you do is you're placing the steak on a wire rack on a sheet pan in the oven at a shockingly low temperature, like between 200 and 275 degrees. Really? Mm-hmm. And you can also do this on a grill if you can like adjust the burners to the right temperature. Right. Okay. And then you're cooking that steak until it's around 15 degrees less than the temperature you want it to end at. For your medium rare steak, you find out what medium rare temperature is and then subtract 10 15. subtract 15 and that's the, the temperature you're looking for. And then once it's at that 15 below your goal temperature, you sear it off in a screeching hot pan and you get that beautiful crust on it and you can baste it and do all the fun things you want to do and that's it and of course rest it well I'm glad you said that last thing the resting because I think if people take nothing else from this conversation it's two things one don't poke your steak like 15 different times if you're gonna test it test it like once or twice at the most but every time you stick something into it you lose a lot of juice and number two let it rest for 10 minutes otherwise you'll lose all those amazing juices instead of having them redistribute in the meat and have it relax and be like so juicy and delicious they will end up on your plate and it will be sad <laughs> exactly it is sad and also i mean it affects everything and there's and it's a great opportunity to reheat stuff while it's resting yes. to set your table to put yes. things out to make some fresh and drinks i love actually a resting period for something because yeah. i factor in other things into that period. And just to give some context to how t- much time it takes in the oven, Serious Eats does give you like chart for like think a one and a half inch thick steak, which is a kind of standard steak size, let's say. And yeah. it's like for a medium rare, you're looking at half an hour in a low temperature oven before you sear it. So it's not like a crazy amount of time. I would be up for trying that out. I have found, generally speaking, especially as, as a personal chef, there's always people in the kitchen. And I, I like people in the kitchen. And especially when people come to my house, I, I want them to feel welcome. But I have at times had to yell at people about cutting into steaks. And it's like they just – they I think people get so excited about a steak that like the minute it comes off the grill or the minute it comes out of the pan, they want to like sit down and start eating it. And I am had to be very firm at a couple of different points. And I just think that's something that I hope that people take away from this conversation is let it rest. I agree. I, but it's interesting. I've seen you in the kitchen and you're so good about people hovering around you <laughs> taking things off out of your pan while you're cooking. I am not, I, I mean, I'm better now, but I don't like anyone near me in the kitchen. No one can even get close to thinking about touching a steak while it's resting. Like you're so much more open. My energy is like, stay away. <laughs> you know, you've opened up and run a successful restaurant, which I've never done. And so ha- having a 
a restaurant is so different, and we've talked about this before, than than being a personal chef. When you're a personal chef, like, and someone says, I want you to make mac and cheese and, like, grilled chicken for dinner, like, that's what you're making. And, you know, luckily, I worked for a lot of really wonderful people that trusted me and were interested in my creativity and let me play in the kitchen. But, like, at the end of the day, I'm in their house, and they're really kind of in charge. When you open, when you have a restaurant, it's the opposite. People are paying for your take. And so you kind of have to have a territory, right? It's your space. You have to defend it. You know, when you're at someone's house and it's like their friends are over and everyone, it, it's a big wild family. And so almost anything can happen in some of those kitchens. Well, even at, I mean, Jonathan, I think would laugh if he heard this conversation because one of our main arguments in the house is him walking through the kitchen while I'm cooking. So it's like, he'll always be like, we have a small, weird shaped kitchen. He'll always be walking through right as like I'm trying to open the oven door and he wants to get and it's something time sensitive like reverse searing a steak you know right, <laughs> and you're like, right. but you're gracious to cut me some slack I want to move on to sides and mention one of my favorite sides at a steakhouse and at home and it's actually one of my favorite side dishes for holidays too so I have to order mushrooms I don't know how you feel about mushrooms oh my gosh it's so funny. I fully left mushrooms off my list, but I love steak and mushrooms together. Right? Like a side. Yeah. You know how sometimes they'll do like a side of sauteed mushrooms and even if it's button or cremini mushrooms, which sometimes steakhouses do, I still love just simply yeah, sauteed. Yeah. Even in like a, an OG kind of mediocre mushroom, it's still delicious with a steak, I think. It goes so well with a steak. One of my favorite recipes that I started making at Thanksgiving and would be kind of like the first side to disappear is just simply roast roasted mushrooms. I first got inspired by, of course, Smitten Kitchen. Uh, I feel like I mentioned <laughs> Smitten Kitchen every episode, but she had some recipe long ago that was literally cremini button mushrooms that you throw in a casserole dish with a lot of garlic, butter, olive oil, and rosemary or thyme or both, and you just roast it. And I mean, what's not to love about what's that? What's not to like? That and then sounds I, great. I think at the end, you drizzle it with like maybe a little sherry or red wine vinegar just to yeah, give it a pop of like acidity. Pop, right. There's such a natural pairing, a steak and mushrooms. And I think the other very, very natural pairing that everybody wants is a potato. So like besides French fries, you know, you're talking about steak frites. What is your go-to potato at a steakhouse or at home? I, I think it has to be a baked potato, right? <laughs> I mean, that was the first one I wrote down. I love a baked potato so much. I mean, I ate a lot of baked potatoes when I was growing up. And when you're eating a baked potato at home on a weeknight, you're you're not as generous with like the butter and or the sour cream. If I go to a steakhouse and I get a baked potato, I give myself permission to have as much butter and sour cream on that baked potato as I want. What else are you, do you do chives? Do you do any I like bacon bits? I will say, you know, there are those like loaded baked potatoes that they'll put like cheddar cheese on and bacon. I personally think the bacon is too much because you're mm -hmm. having the steak and then you're having all these other rich things. So I do not need bacon on my loaded baked potato. I kind of just like a lot of butter and sour cream. Did your family ever call them jacket potatoes? No. What's a jacket potato? It's a baked potato what? apparently. Jonathan's family calls them jacket potatoes. It turns out like British people call them jacket potatoes. It's exactly a baked potato. Oh, that's so funny. Its skin is or the like jacket. the tinfoil is the jacket? No, Do I think it's the skin. Do you bake your potatoes in tinfoil? Yeah. That, it just takes me immediately back to my grandparents' house. Reuben Simon, baked potatoes, 
was meat, a pot roast, a baked potato. That was the way that the farm people ate. I know we're talking about like steakhouse night, but I actually love a baked potato night. I think it's such (laughs) a fun, easy weeknight dinner because you can saute some broccoli. You could have sour cream. You could have beans if you want. You can make it totally vegetarian or you could do bacon if you eat bacon. Top it with all the things that you personally like, which everyone can decide for themselves. It's just, I know people who like salsa on their baked potatoes. Like, I don't judge. Do you? Yeah, the world's like, your it's oyster. It's kind of like a sleeper hit. You mm-hmm. don't necessarily think like, oh, I'm going to go home tonight and eat a baked potato. But it's a. I think it's always really well received. Okay, so another one that I was thinking about that is great, especially if you're cooking a steak at home and you want to have a potato, is the crispy smashed potatoes. Boil the potatoes, you smash them, you throw them in the oven, and you crisp them up. And serve those kind of like you would a baked potato with like a little bit of herbs and creme fraiche or sour cream. It's like your answer to French fries at home because you don't want to make French fries and you don't, maybe you don't want to have just like a mashed potato or a baked potato. You want something crispy and a little, yeah, have a little more texture. That's a great solution. Kind of the best of both worlds. It has the fluffiness inside of the potato, but the crispy outside kind of gets the job done. I think most people don't like to fry things at their house. Totally. This is nothing to do with state. Like this is the opposite (laughs) of what we're talking about because I'm saying who would make a French fry at home. And I really don't make French fries at home, but I clocked this recipe that was going all around the internet where apparently America's Test Kitchen developed a recipe where instead of having to deep fry, like throwing your cut potatoes into hot oil, and then sometimes you have to twice fry them or you have to blanch them first. Right. They have a recipe where you just put all these cut up potatoes in cold oil and you slowly heat them up and you like kind of like stir them occasionally and they become the best French fries ever. It's a, like a reverse steer, but for a French fry. <laughs> so interesting. I've never, I missed that trend, but that sounds really interesting. Maybe I'll do a reverse sear and this like cold fry situation <laughs> and, and report back. Can I come over? Can you do yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, cut, by the way, we we should book you another trip. We, we, We're all wondering when is Sonia coming back. Okay, so there's another potato dish that I think is amazing with a steak. Can I guess? And Yeah, guess. Is it au gratin? Oh my God, it totally is. Potato gratin or au gratin. My mom definitely made that a lot when I was growing up. Or that was a dish that was kind of around in the Midwest. But I discovered one, again, when I was working for clients, and they would ask for this a lot. It travels so well. It's great for like a potluck or if you're going to someone's house, especially for a holiday. Holiday. It's this barefoot contessa recipe. It's potato fennel gratin mm. with it has a lot of gruyere in it. I think you like saute the onions and the fennel in butter. You let them cool a little bit and then you layer them in a pan with sliced potatoes, cheese, and cream. What is not to love about that? That sounds unbelievable. So comforting. If you're not sure as a person about the taste of fennel, you and I are such fennel lovers. But when you cook it, it has it does that same thing that cauliflower does. It yields in texture to something very buttery and it also gets so sweet and it has this like sweet savoriness about it that honestly just elevates the potatoes and then when you mix that with a gruyere and a bunch of cream come on it sounds so good and you know what I love most about it is that's the dish you could totally make ahead days in advance weeks in advance you can freeze gratins so easily and so if you were gonna do a steakhouse dinner party it's so nice to have something that's like done you're partially 
actually maybe reheating while the steak is resting. Who knows? Yes. It's just so smart. I love a gratin for this kind of thing. I actually have made a sweet potato gratin before that I really Wait, like tell too. Me what's it, tell me what's in that. I think I did a mix actually. It's going to sound so weird. A mix of potato and sweet potato and maybe wilted greens like chard, but also still oh, like I'm so a- so interested. Yeah. It's still the other like elements like cream, nutmeg. I think you just need a pinch of nutmeg in a gratin, gruyere, like whatever cheeses. Yeah, baked the same way kind of you're describing. So I guess instead of fennel, it's like sweet potato. And it was really good. I think I want that recipe. Can you find that and post it? I can it? try to because find that. I'm also visualizing it as being really colorful and pretty, right? Yes, it was very colorful and pretty. And it reminds me of one of the last things I want to ask you about, which is the Brussels sprout. Because one of my favorite gratins of all time is actually a Brussels sprout gratin. And I once had like a vegetarian Thanksgiving and this was one of the things I made. And it was one of those, again, things that was gone in seconds. I will post the recipe because I didn't make it up. But it's basically, I think you roast the Brussels sprouts first. You're not like steamy raw because if you did that, I think it would be gross getting them all caramelized and then putting them in a dish with all the cream and cheese. (laughs) It's almost in the spinach artichoke dip land. Does that make sense? Outrageous. Yeah, that sounds outrageous. I would literally never think to do that with a Brussels sprout. I'm always sauteing them or roasting them at any restaurant that has like a crispy fried Brussels sprout. That's something that we're ordering because my husband loves sprouts. He loves a crispy fried Brussels sprout. You know how Um, there's like dishes that define different eras? I think the early 2000s are defined by the fried Brussels sprout appetizer. And But I agree. I am never mad at it. And I think for a steakhouse dinner at home, having some roast roasted Brussels sprouts that you really roast. I take the extra time to like put all my Brussels sprouts flat, cut yes. side down. Yes. Yeah, so okay. that their little insides get brown and caramely. Yes. And yeah, it's like worth that extra one minute to like flip them yes. off. And I yeah. drizzle them with maple syrup for the last five minutes of their baking oh so that gosh. they get like just a tiny bit of a maple glaze, but not too much. Like I don't like it overly sweet. But of course, like no meal is complete without dessert. So yeah, tell me what you were thinking. I was looking to you for the answer. I was like, Carrie's going to know what the perfect – I kind of think one thing that might be fun is like a Sunday bar. If you were going to have a dinner party theme around this, a scoop of ice cream topped with a cherry and some sprinkles. Like that feels very like old school to me, a little chocolate sauce. I mean, I was kind of in that similar space. I was thinking about a chocolate cake. To me, this feels like the place for flourless chocolate cake, pudding cake, those cakes that are – gosh, I'm drawing a total blank. Oh, you're talking about like a a molten chocolate. Cake. A molten chocolate cake. Yeah. Interesting. I feel like that to me is that's always like such standard at a steakhouse like that. It's funny. I was thinking about this. This is a pretty famous steakhouse here in LA, a Mastro's in Beverly Hills. But I think there's a few more Mastro's, like maybe there's one in Vegas or something. But mm-hmm. They're kind of famous for this butter cake that they make. Mm. And that popped up when I was doing some research for snack cakes. And I didn't mention it on that episode because it does involve using the mixer, which we kind of decided like the snack cake. That's not a snacking cake. That's not a snacking cake. But the basic recipe, butter, eggs, cream cheese, you like whip them together. You add maybe a little bit of vanilla, a little bit of flour, and that's kind of it. People love this cake. It's like a vanilla cake, but super rich. 
rich in the same, I think in the same spirit as a flourless chocolate cake. I think chocolate molten in the center cake is so steakhouse and I get it. But also I think even everything we've talked about so far is maybe on the verge of too rich for me after a meal like what we're talking about. Can I tell you what I actually think I would order and slash maybe buy a whole pie of or make is key lime key lime pie. Oh, what a great- I think a key lime pie. What a great ending to this meal that we're talking about. Because yeah, you're talking about something acidic, refreshing, not too heavy. People tend to love a key lime pie. You could make one pretty easily, but you could also just pick one up from the store. Or like if you're doing this at home, when I came to visit you, remember you and Jonathan had those key lime cookie sandwiches from, is it Alden's? Yeah, it was. The, uh, this is the greatest ice cream sandwich of all time. <laughs> I have like... never had a better ice cream sandwich than this. I do not think of key lime. It's never in my top 10 of desserts that I'm, that I'm like drawn to, like that I think, oh, I'm going to get a key lime pie today. Like I never think that. But this is a like, stop you in your tracks kind of cookie sandwich. We discovered this when Jonathan was like eliminating dairy from his diet because this this ice cream sandwich is also non-dairy. It's so good and it was so hard to find for a while that I almost wrote Alden's a letter being like, please help us get your product. It's so good. We can't live without well, it. I haven't found it. I haven't found it yet. I'm still looking for it. It's so, so hard to find. I mean, it's an Oregon company, so I think it's easier to find here. But if you can find it, Alden's Key Lime Pie ice cream sandwiches, non-dairy, are one of the greatest ice cream sandwiches on the planet. When I was visiting you, right, we went out two nights for mm-hmm. ice cream, and then we mm-hmm. also ate this ice cream at your house, which I think it was like four ice cream sandwiches in a box, and there were three yeah. of us. And I remember being, can I go get the other one? I ate two. Um, that's a great ending to a steakhouse meal. So before we go, you know I'm going to ask you if there's anything fabulous that you ate or made this week. So I did not actually do a lot of cooking this week, but our family went out for dinner on Saturday night at this local restaurant called All Time. And there were two things that I were completely unexpected and knocked my socks off. One, we ordered this vegetarian meal. It was basically just like a platter of vegetables, a couple of like a little bit of beans. And so we just ordered that like kind of for the table. And on that, they had grilled corn, but it wasn't like a like a big ear of corn that most people are used to seeing. I've seen these in the farmer's market. They're kind of, you know, those little skinny corns that come in like a can, right? They're sort of like an an Asian corn or something. I don't know. Clearly this restaurant all time found these at the farmer's market and they cut them. They like cut them in half and then grilled them. So they almost were like curly cue and like Hmm. charred and then sweet and salty. And we finished them off in like a second. That sounds so delicious. And then for dessert, we ordered a strawberry shortcake. Oh, yum. I don't know who's making the biscuits over there, but the biscuit was so light and like slightly lemony and like with the tiniest amount of sugar. And like it was was an epic meal. That sounds incredible. You know, one thing that surprised me this week is I actually made a no-need bread, which I almost never make, but... I had a client who needed me to tweak a recipe, so I was testing it for them. I I think I've what only is a made no this- need. What is a no need bread? Does it really mean that you don't have to need it? The thing about the no need category is where I have really played around with it is no need pizza dough. But whether you're making pizza dough or bread, it's the same premise. You literally just put flour, active dry yeast warm water and salt into a bowl 
you mix it with like a wooden spoon and that's it. You don't need it. You don't do anything. You're like, how is this pile of goop going to turn into something? You cover it overnight, at least 12 hours. It depends. Like you oh, can actually really? do- overnight? Yeah, yeah. Overnight. It depends how much yeast you add. You can do quicker no-need versions, like, but you have to add more yeast. But if you add just even a little bit of yeast and you give it enough time, it's going to rise. When you see it the next day or 12 hours later, it's like- it has reached almost the top of the bowl and it's covered with airy bubbles. But then when you kind of form it into a ball, it is that kind of dough that's like sticky, but doesn't stick to your hands. Like it will form into a ball. And then you, yeah, you don't need it. And it's like, was this revolutionary concept that Leahy, I forget his first names, this baker developed for them. Jim Leahy, right? Jim Leahy developed and Mark Mark Bittman Yeah. And Mark Bittman wrote about it for the New York Times. It was like one of those recipes that went viral. And I think I made it, like I said, once in my life. But again, I had a client who was like, can you test my version of it? And and I was so surprised at how good it was. Because I don't I don't really make sourdough at home or homemade breads besides challah because there's so many amazing bread bakers in town that I like – I kind of just prefer theirs. And and also it's a little fussy in terms of timing sometimes. But this I could get down with. And really there's nothing better than a freshly baked loaf of bread with a big smear of butter and some crunchy flake salt. (laughs) I'm starving right now. That is literally the best thing to end with. Fresh homemade bread that was like not hard to do that you smear with butter and put a little bit of salt on. We are complete. That's it. We're complete. We are complete. All right. Well, Well, then it's time to go eat. (laughs) This has been so fun. I love you so much. I'm excited to be introduced to these new ideas of cooking a steak in the reverse way and maybe putting my potatoes in cold oil and see what happens. Well, and you're really inspiring me to even have a steakhouse dinner at home. I hadn't even (laughs) considered that. I love that whole concept. And I also love this idea of I should be grilling my steaks, obviously. So I think there's stuff for both of us to try. Steak is an exciting thing. So I think that's exciting. Yeah. All right. Well, until next week. Until next week. Bye. Bye. Thanks for being our food friend. If you enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe, leave us a review, and share this episode with friends. We love hearing from you. So follow us on Instagram or drop us a line at foodfriendspodcast.com. Yes, we'd love to hear from you and your food friends. Happy cooking and eating. Bye.